Welcome to Grave Crimes Podcast, where we discuss horrific crimes and the haunts that follow. Hi, I'm Heather C. And I'm Cynthia G. Today on Grave Crimes, we explore the famed Amityville murders and the subsequent hauntings that followed. So the point of this podcast uh, is twofold, really. It's to talk about murder and true crime and a little bit about hauntings and the paranormal because that's something that we are involved in or we're involved in or kind of are both slash still kind of experty on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's how we met. <laughs> yes. That is exactly how we met. Um, and it's our passion, part of our passion, and so is a lot of things, which we'll get into. But um, we want to start off with something local, which is the Amityville Horror Case. And Amityville is local to Long Island, which is pretty close to uh, both of us, the Amityville uh, town. Yeah, it's about like two minutes from me. Well, maybe a little more than that. It might be exactly. <laughs> so then it would be like 22 minutes from me, <laughs> since you're like 20 minutes from me. Um, and actually, since Ronnie DeFeo, uh, the murderer, just died recently on like, no, was it March 26th, I believe? I think so, yeah. Of 2021. I think this is great to kick off the podcast with. So I'm just going to jump right in to the Amityville Keys file. So on November 13th in 1974, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. shot and killed six members of his family at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. The case is famous not just because of the murders, but because of the hauntings that followed. Or I should say alleged hauntings. We will discuss. Oh, we will. (laughs) So Amityville itself is a town located on the south shore of Long Island. As of 2010, there were about... 10,000 people living there. The area is old. Uh, It was first settled in 1658 by white settlers, but it's very important to point out that uh, long before it was settled uh, by the Montaukett Nation, which is the Native American population of Long Island. Um, All of Long Island is full of Native history and uh, folklore. So, We'll, I'm sure, touch upon that in other stories. Oh, yeah. But Long Island is just full of Native names and Native history. Um, In 1970, and now, there's uh, spots in Amityville that are well above middle class. Um, You're on the water. You have large historical houses there, and people have boats, so that's a pretty good indicator. (laughs) Yeah, those houses, I think, in that particular area are probably easily selling for like a million yeah. If not more. Easy. And they're not huge. And they have their own docks. Yeah. And boats. Yeah, I don't have either of those things. No. Maybe one day. No. I kind <laughs> of like a patio. That's about it. <laughs> I'll have a canoe. <laughs> Maybe a canoe. Uh, so the DeFeo family, they moved from Brooklyn to Long Island, as many families have done in the past. I was going to say, doesn't everybody? Yeah. Either that or Queens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so they lived comfortably. Uh, They were a very large family, and you had uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr., his wife, Louise DeFeo, Ronnie Butch DeFeo Jr., and he was born uh, September 26, 1951. Then you had Dawn, Teresa, Allison, Mark, and John. Apparently, as Ronnie grew up, he began lashing out, as most teenagers do. 
His was a little different as he got into a couple physical altercations with his father and his friends. Uh, in one of these altercations, he threatened a friend with a gun. Ooh. And his parents were concerned. Obviously, I would be concerned as well. And they took him to a psychiatrist. Um, Ronnie was not having it whatsoever. Um, so instead, they tried something different and they tried incentives, which did not work well either. Um, they tried cash incentives. They bought him a speedboat in hopes that it would help uh, with his troubles. There came a time where he became an avid LSD and heroin user, which, I mean, this was, what, the 70s? This is, like, a yeah, lot of people I, used LSD. Wasn't. Yeah. And I'm not a mental health professional. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have my degrees in history and uh, education, and I love to research. But I did find that the long-term effects of using LSD uh, are persistent psychosis. So he was uh, eventually diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder. So I'm assuming that LSD um, had some sort of effect on an antisocial personality disorder. I would and imagine. it does say that um, reoccurrent use can have uh, long-term hallucinogenic effects even after you stop taking the drug and delusions. And now I know today they're doing a lot of research about LSD and microdosing and how it benefits, but this definitely was not that. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and he was also on heroin, which... I'm thinking they're not doing any kind of dosing. No. No. And they're definitely saying, obviously, that interacts with mental health conditions and um, that you might have some psychotic symptoms if you're going through any sort of withdrawal. Okay, so getting to the murder of the DeFeo family in the early morning hours of November 13th, 1974, uh, Ronnie, using a 35 caliber Marlin rifle, uh, walked into his parents' bedrooms and shot them both twice while they slept. Uh, they were both 43. He then entered his brother's bedroom and shot them both in their beds as well. Uh, Mark was 12, and John was 9. Jeez. From there, he went into his sister's rooms. Dawn was 18, and Allison was 13. Everybody was found uh, lying uh, on their stomachs and shot. Um, all the murders took place within 15 minutes, and Ronnie DeFeo then showered, dressed for work, and collected his clothing along with the murder weapon and put them in a pillowcase and disposed of them in a storm drain. And then he went to work at his grandfather's dealership at 6 a.m. Now, I did some research on this type of weapon, and it's extremely powerful. It's loud, so yeah. it's surprising that in the residential area that nobody heard it. Yeah, because when you were watching the video about it, mm -hmm. I couldn't believe how loud it was, and the guy was outside. Yeah. I mean, that was just... I can't imagine that going off in a confined space. And if you're familiar with Amityville, I mean, the homes are not that far apart. They're probably, like, maybe double the distance of a traditional suburban... If that. Yeah. Because in that particular area, especially being on the water, they're not as far apart as you might think they would be. Yeah. You would definitely hear that weapon. Yeah. And, and especially with the river behind them, mm -hmm. it's open space. So yeah. there's not a whole lot to buffer the sound yeah at three in the morning especially yeah, no. three four in the morning no not so much yeah so he went to the dealership and at work 
He called home, pretending not to know why his father hadn't shown up for work. His father also worked at the dealership. So he was saying he was bored around noon, and he left work and spent the day with friends. And he attempted to secure an alibi by telling people um, all throughout the day that he couldn't reach anyone at home. And approximately at 6.30 p.m., he ran into Henry's Bar, which was a local bar in Amityville, which is now a shopping center, and yelled, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. So five local men, including DeFeo, piled into his Buick Electra and drove to the house. 112 Ocean Avenue was quiet, except for the barking dog, Shaggy, which was their sheepdog who was tied up inside of the kitchen's back door. The men went inside, and the family was discovered upstairs. 911 was called. Now, initially, Ronnie was taken into protective custody because he claimed that it was a mafia hit that slayed his family. Right. So they took him to protect him. It was the following day, while the police were interrogating him, that he confessed, and he was quoted saying, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. And eventually, he would say that the voices and the house made him do it. So the trial began on October 14th, 1975, and he put in a insanity defense. And he said that he killed his family in self-defense because he heard voices plotting against him. Oddly enough, his insanity plea was supported by the psychiatrist for the prosecution. He Hmm. said, yeah, he's crazy. Wow. He has an antisocial personality disorder which was um, not helped by the use of heroin and LSD. But despite that, he was aware of his actions at the time. Okay. So he was crazy, but he was cognizant, and there's no reason why he can't be charged for this murder. And on November 21st, 1975, he was found guilty on all six counts of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to six 25-year life sentences. And he died on March 12th, 2021, at the age of 69 at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York. And that is the murders, in short, in Amityville, New York. In Amityville. (laughs) Amityville. Amityville. Um, Which apparently, according to some of the people we're going to discuss in this next segment, Amityville means something like nice village. Yeah, Amityville. Friendly village. Yeah, Amityville. Amity? Amity? That that means like amicable, I think, right? Like uh, A-M-I-T-Y is like, I mean, I might be completely making that up, but I think that's... I mean, it sounds right. Yeah. It sounds good. Yeah, to be amicable, to be... Yep. I'm sure it's got some Dutch (laughs) roots in there somewhere. Um, Actually, one of the things that I wanted to almost even go back to on yours is... I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what the distinction is, and we probably should look this up, (laughs) just saying. Um, Why was it second degree? Do we know? Like, I don't remember what exactly the differences are. Um, I think it has to do with the way someone was killed, and I think um, if they're being, it's planned. So second degree is less than first degree, obviously. Um, yeah, that seems to make sense. I mean, just saying. First degree there is premeditated, and second degree is not. Although there was some evidence that it was premeditated. Apparently, 
Um, he obviously had enough rounds for his, his weapon. He seemed to just have... He knew the exact time to do it. He had no problem just showering, putting the stuff into storm drain and pillowcase. It was almost like he thought about it before. Yeah. But I guess for them charging or him to being convicted of second degree, maybe they didn't have enough evidence to charge him with premeditated murder. Yeah, because I'm sure they had to prove where the weapon was. Like, So I'm assuming his family owned this gun. Yeah. So he had access to it at any point. Yeah. Right? So... And that was another thing, right? Like, one of the things you had found out was that that particular gun can hold six rounds. Yep, so he had to reload. Yeah, and and I mean, never mind premeditated. Okay, that's bad. But the fact that he took the time to do that is just kind of disturbing. It means that, like, he knew what he was doing, and he was okay continuing to do it. Mm -hmm. And he had to have some idea that he could get caught. Totally. Yeah, he, not only did he shoot his parents twice, so that's four rounds. And then went to his brother's rooms. So that's an extra two rounds. So there's the six. He then had to go into both of his sister's rooms. So right. then he had to reload. That was two opportunities there to not pull the trigger. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine. I can't imagine being in his head. No. To be able to do that. I have a hard time killing bugs. So. Me too. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Um, so I suppose we should get into the haunting now. Which might be more famous than the actual murders. Yeah, I think it is. And that's kind of sad in a way. That is very sad. Because it's like this family is kind of just lost in the mix. Yeah. It's more about what happened to the family after. Yes. So to get into the haunting, I thought it might be good to give you a little history about the house itself, right? Ooh, I love history. So when it was built and all that good stuff. So it was built in 1924. By a couple by the name of John and Catherine Moynihan. So apparently they went there, bought the property, started to build the house in 1924. They also, so what they built originally was like this tiny cottage. Mm-hmm. And then they outgrew it really quickly. So they moved the house down like a couple hundred yards, built a bigger house, which is the house we know now. And then in 1965, their descendants sold the home to the DeFeos. Okay, so it was like one family beforehand. Yeah, which is kind of cool for that length of time. I mean, well, it was only like 41 years. It seems so <laughs> long ago that I'm like, wow, that was a really long time. So then after, after the DeFeos, the Lutzes bought the home in December of 1975. And that was Kathy and George Lutz, who are now quite famous in their yes. own right. And Kathy's three children from a previous marriage, Daniel, Missy, and Christopher. So now that you know who lived there... Um, we'll talk about what the claims were. So, as Heather mentioned, um, DeFeo claimed to be possessed by the house and heard voice tell- telling him to kill his family. He did later recant that claim, I believe. He did say there were a bunch of other theories that popped out later. He actually said that his sister was responsible for That's right. the murders of his siblings. That him and his sister had planned the whole thing together. And he's the one that killed his parents. And the plan was to take these siblings to uh, the grandparents' house. But his sister was worried because, and this is the eldest sister, Dawn. Apparently she was very fed up with uh, being ruled by the parents as well and wanted to go live with her boyfriend. So they planned these murders together. He killed the parents and she was supposed to take the children to another location, which was the grandparents. And... 
something went left, I guess, and she didn't want witnesses, so she killed the siblings. And then he found the siblings dead, and they got into an altercation, and then he killed Dawn. Which, I think actually, when we had talked about it, you mentioned that there was actually potentially some evidence to that. Yes, there was gunpowder, unburned gunpowder on her nightgown, which suggests that she may have loaded a gun. But that could have also come from anywhere, maybe. I mean, if they say that the boys were killed before the girls, I mean, there could have been gunpowder residue because maybe he reloaded in that room. I mean, who who knows exactly why, but there were a couple of other theories that were never explored once he was convicted. Yeah, because I guess it didn't make sense to keep going, right? Right. All right. So here are, I'm just going to go through them and then we can discuss them in further detail. (laughs) (laughs) These are some of the paranormal claims um, made by the Lutzes as I found on the web. And we all know that isn't always true. So one of the things I found out was that supposedly stepfather, George Lutz, um, had a history of dabbling in the occult, which is interesting given some other factual here later. So keep that in mind. Okay. Um, George was said to wake up at 3.15 a.m., which was, and he did this every day, um, which was around the time that Ron carried out his murders. The Lutz family claimed to smell strange odors, see green slime oozing out of the walls and keyholes, and experience cold spots in certain areas of the house. Um, They said that when a priest came to bless the house, he allegedly heard a voice scream, get out. He told the Lutzes never to sleep in that particular room in the house. A nearby garage door opening and closing, an invisible spirit knocking a knife down in the kitchen, a pig-like creature, which I think they named Jody. Why would they name it? I have no idea. Yeah, I heard that one on uh, a video I watched today, (laughs) actually. (laughs) That was interesting. Um, Yeah, so a pig-like creature with red eyes staring down at George and his son Daniel from a window. George waking up to his wife Kathy levitating off their bed. Sons Daniel and Christopher also levitating together in their beds. They claimed to have swarms of flies in the sewing room in December. Mm. They saw cloven hooves in the snow um, and claimed that evil forces started moving the furniture, most of which was left over from the DeFeos. And I came to learn today that, like, even the bed frames, they didn't keep the mattresses, thank God. I would imagine those would be taken probably for evidence anyway, right? That's some, that's some, but even up. just like the bed, <laughs> the bed frame, it just, no, no, not, sorry. And supposedly some strange welts showed up on Kathy's body. So after all these fantastic events took place, it only took 28 days for them to move out of the house after moving in. They left the home with their children. And I think it was like three sets of clothes for each person. And that was it. So that was what January 1975, 76. Sorry, excuse me. When they fled, because it was about 28 days. I don't know exactly when in December, but it was about a month after they bought the house. So now they bought the house like two months after the murders. Two no, or they three bought, months. No, it was about a year and a month. So the murders took place on in 1974. They bought the house in December of 1975. Oh, December. Yeah. Never mind. I said okay. Yeah, so they bought the house in December of 1975. So it sat vacant for all that time. Yeah, which hmm. is another thing. Like, uh, this is going to sound really weird, but, you know, like now they have crime scene cleanup crews that can do like, don't ask me why I know this, <laughs> <laughs> um, that do like real like deep clean, right? Yes, yeah. 
I mean, I wasn't alive back then, but I would imagine that maybe they didn't quite do as good a job back then. I don't know. I mean, it's just, again, like the house being vacant for that long and the furniture still being there just kind of creeps me out a little. But absolutely. I digress. So one of the couples that also became quite famous through this entire uh, event that really kind of took place over two years um, was Ed and Lorraine Warren. And if you guys are at all interested in the paranormal, you probably know that name. So just to give you a little history about them, both were devout Catholics. Ed was a self-taught demonologist and Lorraine was a light trance medium. By the way, Lorraine only passed away in 2019 at the age of 92. Yeah. They formed the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952 and performed over 4,000 investigations in their time working. So I watched a video where it's actually from their YouTube channel. I didn't know that they had. Oh, I didn't know they had a YouTube channel. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So I watched an interview about this specific investigation. And I'm going to go through some of the the in-depth information that they kind of gave from their investigation, which gives a little bit about, I guess, their experiences and also some of the phenomena that... When did they do their investigation? So that was in March of 1976. So give or take, right? If Let's just say for argument's sake, the Lutzes left at the end of December, right? Because even if they moved in on the 1st and Mm -hmm. they stayed 28 days. So it's the end of December. So So two or three months later. Yeah. And what was interesting is they did show some pictures Mm -hmm. and she was showing like how Kathy Lutz had left plants on the counter that had been watered or whatever. And I'm like, wouldn't they be dead? I mean, this photo is old and not the best. So I couldn't, she's like, don't you see the plants on the counter? No, (laughs) I don't see any of that. But it wasn't because it wasn't there, but the photo was just an old photo. So it had kind of worn a little bit. But anyway, so they said that they were contacted to do the investigation by Marvin Scott, who was an anchorman for Channel 5 at the time. Which was already a little like, That's okay. interesting. So you're starting off with... Yeah, who called the press? Yeah. I mean, clearly this must have been... Obviously, the murder was in the news. But that was like over a year prior. So it, it was just a little strange that that would be the person that would contact them. Not the Lutzes, not a friend or family member. Why was it somebody from a news station? But... Well, did the Lutzes call the news? You know what? I couldn't specifically... I mean, I'm sure it's out there, but there's so much to dig through. Like, you can't even... I couldn't even find... When I would Google who built the house, it took me forever to find that because when I put in, who was the first owner of the house at 112 Ocean Avenue? Yeah. The DeFeos came up. Like, I know that's not them. (laughs) (laughs) They moved in there. Liars. Um, So anyway, so Ed and Lorraine Warren... Uh, claimed they hadn't heard about the murders because they were out of the country at the time. And so when they were contacted by Marvin Scott, they made an appointment to go to the house and they were supposed to meet George Lutz there. And when they got to the house, he wasn't there. So they made a phone call, got in touch with him, and the closest he would get to the house was four blocks away at a pizzeria. And it was so funny because actually in the video, Ed calls it a pizza parlor. I'm like, you're clearly (laughs) not from New York. They met with George and Ed said... He would ask George what happened in the house. And the only thing George would say is, you know. And he'd go, no, I don't. Like, what he said, what was the activity you experienced? And, and George Lutz would just say, you know. And he just wouldn't really answer the question. So George gives him the keys. They go to the house. And Ed said, so this is, this is Ed's version of what he did initially. Um, he walked in and he said, quote, the house reeked of death. 
but not just because of the murders. Like Maybe the dead plants. <laughs> probably. Something otherworldly. <laughs> he said the first thing he always does on investigations is go into the basement because that's where evil likes to hang out because it is, in his words, outside of God's light and huh. light in general. Um, he took out a crucifix and asked whatever was there to reveal itself. He claims that instantly he felt a pressure force that forced him to the floor and he felt hundreds of pinpoints of electricity all over his body. He basically described it as like a pouring down of immense amounts of water. That was like the kind of pressure he felt. He said to combat it, he used what he called religious resistance and commanded whatever was there to go back to where it came from. And he said instantly the pressure lifted. I don't know when he says go back to where it came from. I'm not sure if he means hell Mm -hmm. or the corner of the basement. (laughs) He wasn't clear about that part. So... Um, while he was in the basement, Lorraine decided that she was going to go, she was going to check out the first floor and then she would make her way up to the second floor. Um, and she says on the first floor, she actually had a vision of the bodies of DeFeos. I'm assuming on the gurney. She didn't explicitly say that, but she did say this was on the first floor before they were removed to the morgue. Okay. She didn't say, you know, they were standing there or anything. She just said she saw their bodies. So I'm assuming, you know what that means, <laughs> and that they were on gurneys or you know in body bags lying on the floor or something she goes up the stairs to the first landing and she said she felt the same kind of pressure that ed did but they hadn't talked about it okay he was not anywhere near he's still in the basement then when she got to the top of the stairs she turned left and went into the sewing room and she said she turned to marvin scott from channel five and said to him i hope this is as close to hell as i'll ever get so this is all on video apparently i have not seen that video um, I would love to. You know, it. it's funny because we're sitting here talking about something that is like literally part of, at least for me, like it's part of the repertoire at Halloween, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's that circuit you do of like all the creepy haunted places. And what's crazy is like, because I heard it so much growing up and then people who come visit, it's like, oh, I got to go to the Amityville house. That there's a lot of stuff I never knew. Yeah. Like, I never really got it, it's, this far into it. Which it's is like a coming of age thing. Yeah. It's where you you pass the house slowly. <laughs> um, by the way, just in case anyone's wondering, they changed the address. And I will not give that out. I'm sure you could find it online anyway. It's not 112 Ocean Avenue anymore. But it is only house built sideways. And <laughs> hint, hint. Hint, hint. The famed eyeglass eyeball looking yeah those weird <laughs> windows half um, windows or whatever yeah are not there anymore either nope they did change those but yeah it just like everyone has their own town haunts or their state haunts uh amityville is one of them for long island and that's something that you do in high school and college and drive around out on halloween and um I guess being here, you hear just the story and you obviously see the original movie or like the 13 others they made and you don't really get down into it. And especially being in the paranormal field, you would think that you would look into it. But I guess because we really can't get into the house, it's privately owned. Yeah. It's just not something that we really dug up. Well, I think it's been so covered. to death. Yeah, I was going to say that, (laughs) but you know... Um, but it's been done so many times. Yeah. And I think we kind of avoided it like the plague. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Considering the pandemic, but you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So we, we never really, you know, people would ask about it. Every time we did lectures, people asked about it. Yeah. But we just kind of avoided it just because there was so much controversy. And I think we didn't want to get caught up in that either. 
Yeah, I'm, and there is. So now I have my own opinions. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. There, there's controversy about how the murders happened, who actually committed the murders, even though there was a conviction, and whether or not the place was haunted at all. Right. So, so yeah, so she's upstairs. She goes into the sewing room, and that was the room where the priest had heard the voice that said, get out. Apparently, and this is something I found out from them, was the priest was also slapped in the face. So that was a new revelation because that one hadn't gotten out. Um, So then she also said that she felt a horrible depression in the house. And I kind of laughed when I heard that in the video. I'm like, no, really? (laughs) Who would have thought that would have happened? Just walking in there. Yeah, really. Like, come on now. So some of this is not related to the haunting, but just some points that they mention. They claim that the people who say it's a hoax are just atheists that don't want people to believe in demons and devils and diabolical evil forces. And so that's who perpetuated the hoax theory. In fact, he actually, Ed actually offered $3,000 to anyone, the first person that could prove that Amityville was a hoax. I'd like to know how they would do that. Prove it's not a hoax. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah, prove it's a hoax, hoax, prove it's not a hoax. That's the whole, that's the whole issue. That's the whole thing. And honestly, you can't sit there and say that you're not, that you're an atheist because you think it's a a hoax. I mean, you could believe that there is a demon somewhere else in the world, but maybe just not at this location. Yeah. And I, I, you know, to, not that I want to get into religious discussion, (laughs) this is going to take a whole other turn, but just because they're Catholic doesn't mean that only Catholics believe in evil spirits. Exactly. So that's really unfair for them to make that statement, but I digress. They also said that the priest that had visited there told the Lutzes not to take anything out of the house with them when they left. (laughs) This was an interesting one, and I did check, and it is true, that the actual latitude of 112 Ocean Avenue is 40.666. And yes, it is. So that was kind of interesting. Because, of course, you know, I couldn't just let that it go. That is I interesting. I couldn't take his word for it. <laughs> it's like i got to make sure that's actually true. That's that's actually very interesting. Right? Would have been more interesting in, I don't know, like... What's whole, the longitude? I have no idea. <laughs> Look, he only said latitude. I was only checking what he said. And I don't know much about latitude and longitude and, like, what it all really means. It's your location. Well, that... Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. But like, it would have been even more impressive if like the latitude had been six point six six. Yeah, it was just there was no forty in there. Hmm. That kind of throws it off. So anyway, um, the next family to buy the house was the Comardis, and apparently they were offered two hundred and fifty thousand dollars by American International Pictures to sell them the house, the film company, because they wanted to film the movie there. And again, it was one of those things that I couldn't, I'm assuming they took the deal. But even if they did, this company was not able to film at the home because the town wouldn't let them. So basically they ended up with a very expensive house that they couldn't do anything with. (laughs) And apparently Ed and Lorraine Warren talked to the Colmartys at some point Hmm. because they told them that nothing had happened and the house was perfectly fine. And Ed's comment was, how could it possibly be? Um, Well not really helpful to your case <laughs> when people are saying it was a hoax and the next person to move in said yeah nothing happened so they give him three thousand dollars 
No, apparently they didn't have enough proof. Just living there wasn't enough. Yeah. They also actually claimed that originally, and here we are with this atheist thing again, that George Lutz was originally an atheist. And now he's a devout Catholic that goes to church every day. But here's the thing. How could he be an atheist, but then also dabble in the occult? No, that was his, the stepfather, his stepfather, I believe. Listen, I don't know that that one's even true. So let's leave that one alone. (laughs) We'll pretend that one didn't exist. (laughs) Well, and listen, he could be an atheist and his father could be into dark magic or stepfather. I mean, I suppose, you Mm -hmm. know, anything's possible. Listen, I was raised Catholic and I'm a witch now. So, you know, anything can happen. (laughs) So, yeah, they showed pictures of, I'm not sure exactly what part of the yard it was. I believe it was the back or the side. And they claimed that Ronald DeFeo Sr. had gone up to Canada about six months before he was murdered and brought back a priest that was an exorcist to exorcise the home and had religious statues made to surround the house because he, because, quote, he had a devil on his back. Are you talking about that Mary statue? I couldn't make it out in the because picture. Because there is like a Mary statue on, on the lawn, but it was like every this, Italian American well, on yes. Long Island has a Mary statue. Well, this, I will say from the picture, I forget where, I want to say it was like St. Joseph something. I can't remember. I should have written it down. Bad researcher. <laughs> um, it was this like big round platform mm-hmm. with the statue on it. It didn't look like Mary. Okay, because they did have a Mary one in one of the photos. I'm sure. They, well, apparently he b- had gotten a whole bunch of statues oh. and put them all around the house. Oh. And it was kind of creepy because the one that was in the picture had two children, like, kneeling and praying huh. facing the statue. It was just strange. So Ed would kind of claim, like, why would he do that if the house wasn't haunted? And this was before the Lutz's claims. I mean... I'm like... A lot of people have religious statues on their lawn. Yeah, I, I just... And that was kind of a big thing then. It was bigger in the 70s, I think. Yeah. So, whatever. They also claimed that Ronnie Jr. was dabbling in the black arts and that he kept the tools for his dark craft in what came to later be known the Red Room or the Gateway to Hell. Um, again, and do we have pictures of those? They, have, they did have a picture of the Red Room. It was black and white, so who the hell knows if it was actually red? <laughs> it could be green for all we know. And it just kind of looked like a storage area under the stairs. It didn't look at all evil to me. But they didn't have any his occult tools. No. And, and that's kind of the thing. Like, I would imagine the, I mean, I guess the Lutzes would have said something if there were things in there. And yeah. he wouldn't have had time to remove them. But when they took the picture, there was nothing in there. Yeah. So either the DeFeo's, Ronnie Jr. didn't leave everything behind. Or the Lutzes took that stuff out. Like, they didn't specifically state. So these are just a lot of, you know, he said, she said, you know, all that good stuff. Then they showed a picture of the boathouse from the riverside of the house, the back. Yeah. And that's where they claim that an Indian tribe kept their prisoners that had, quote unquote, gone mad. In the boathouse that was built in Mm -hmm. like 190 something. Yep. Same one. (laughs) Um, There were also claims that... The cameramen that were there to film during the investigation all had severe heart palpitations that drove them to their knees. And it was funny because Lorraine said, and all of the men, just the men, had heart attacks and died. And her husband immediately (laughs) countered that and was like, not all of them. I'm like, well, could you get your story straight? (laughs) Was it all of them or not? Because apparently... um, Jeez, I already, I, I've already forgotten the man's name. The one that called them to yeah. come there. 
he's still alive. And then she's showing other pictures and she's like, oh yeah. And he's gone on to do whatever at another university and he's still practicing. I'm like, so, okay, so that's two guys. So was any of them? Did any of them? A couple of them. It was the 70s. Everybody was drinking and smoking and eating really bad foods. Yeah. And you know, not for nothing, heart attacks are pretty common. Yeah. Especially in men. Right? Yeah. Something like that. Come on. I thought you meant they all, they all had a heart attack. I write that in there. No. No. <laughs> but they like, well, all weird. eventually died from heart attacks. I was actually more shocked at how young both George and Kathy were when they died. They were in their 50s. And yeah. one of them was 59, the other one was 52. That's young. This is where it kind of got interesting, too. Apparently, the Warrens had obtained a letter from the president of the Polygraph Association of America, and they were the ones that performed polygraph tests on the Lutzes, which they, according to this company, passed. So it was performed on June 19th, 1979, by Chris Gugus, if I'm saying that correctly, <laughs> who interviewed George and Michael Rice. That one's easy. Um, who interviewed Kathy. It's actually Riche. Yeah, probably. With my <laughs> luck, that's exactly right. Um, so they did a pretest, And in the letter, it states, quote, both subjects were then interviewed in depth by each examiner in order to make certain that each person understood each critical question to be asked under examination. So hmm. I read that and I'm thinking, hmm. Did they actually ask the questions that they were going to ask during the polygraph? So I'm like, all right, let me see what a pretest normally consists of and if they actually do them. So apparently they do. According to the Federation of American Scientists, and you can find them at FAS.org, hmm. the pretest interview has been considered an indispensable component of the polygraph examination. The importance of the pretest is not only in its role to provide subjects with information about the examination, right? So not what they're going to be asked, but like how it works, right, the okay. process, and to inform them, inform them, let's try that again, of their legal rights, but also in its ability to generate the psychological climate considered necessary for a valid polygraph test. An important purpose of the interview is to persuade a subject that the examination is professionally conducted and that any deception attempted will be very obvious to the examiner. Such instructions, it is thought, place truthful subjects at ease and increase anxiety in subjects who intend to be deceptive. Interesting. Right? So, all right, fine. I get why you'd want to do a pretest. Because if the person is going to lie, you kind of like... You psych them out. Right. Gotcha. Totally makes sense. But the wording... And when I tell you, like, I heard that part and I stopped the video... And I rewound and I said, okay, I got to get this down verbatim because I, I needed, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah. And this is directly from the letter that the Warrens had gotten about the polygraph test. So it's not just supposedly, now granted he didn't show it to the so camera. I wonder what kind of questions they asked. Well, I have a couple for you. Oh, you do? I do. So we only were able to hear the ones, some of the ones that George was asked just because they ran out of time. Oh, okay. Unlike we will. So, question one. Are the details you gave me on your frightening experiences at the Amityville house true? And he answered yes. That's kind of vague. Yeah. I mean, frightening experiences, you could have fallen down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a pretty frightening experience. Um, you know, bumps in the night, just like regular house noises could be frightening. Yeah. Right? So that wouldn't be a lie. I feel like it should be a little, I mean... 
I don't know how polygraph questions are, are formed, but I I almost feel like it should be something like, did you see your wife levitating in the middle of the night? Well, so the next question was, when you fled your Amityville house, were you in fear of your life and the well-being of your family? Obviously, he said yes. So the next one gets interesting. Okay. After leaving Amityville, did you and Kathy both levitate at your mother-in-law's house? Well, why would they be levitating at her mother at her mother's house? That's weird. Yeah. Now, from a paranormal perspective, if I was hearing that before I was investigating a place and they're telling me, oh, my house is haunted. Oh, but I started levitating somewhere else. I would say the house isn't haunted. You're haunted. There's something attached to you. Right. Yeah. And and that's one of the things that in the paranormal realm, we've kind of always talked about like furniture mm-hmm. or items. But we'll get more into that in another episode. We got plenty of material. <laughs> so this one was interesting too. During your 28 days in Amityville, did you experience unexplained flies and disturbing odors on several occasions? So first of all, <laughs> I had to play that part a couple of times because I didn't think I heard unexplained flies correctly. <laughs> like, it just sounded so weird. Unexplained flies. But like... Any fly in December could be considered unexplained. It, I mean... Again, it wasn't... Even, my point is it wasn't specific. Also, it is an old house. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to think logically. It's an old house, and you could have um, any, any number of animals trying to seek shelter in your home. Yep. You know, maybe they got trapped and unfortunately died, and maybe the process of decomp was just happening, and there were flies. Yeah. I and mean, that would also explain know. the odors. And the, yeah. You know, truthfully, the drafts, I mean, it's an old house. The infernal draft. <laughs> yeah. I know all about that. Um, so then, this is an interesting one, too. I hadn't heard this one. At the Amityville house, did you hear what sounded like a marching band tuning up in the middle of the night? To which he answered yes. Well, that's just a little weird. It is. It's just... I'm very nonspecific. Yeah. Like... Uh, there was no marching band ever there. I, don't I mean, listen, there's a guy like across a main road from me. I mean, I can see the house and I can hear them like playing drums and stuff. Yeah. I mean, truthfully, if we're being honest, it's quite possible that somebody across the river or a couple of houses down, you know, if they were a teenager or whatever. And I don't know, they were in their garage playing an instrument. It's not impossible. No, it's not. I mean, the other, I was at work the other day and I heard... I guess it was a drum line, and it was so low. It was like, dun-dun, dun-dun. I was like, is someone playing Jumanji? Like, I really <laughs> thought, I, I it freaked me out a little bit. But, it, I mean, it sounds travel? Ha- travel, and they sound different at certain times of the night. Maybe someone was playing some sort of instrument, or maybe, you know, uh, I can't quite remember where it is in relation to, like, the main road. But... Maybe there was some sort of musical band or something going on at one of the local bars. Well, and that I was just going to say, right? So wasn't Henry's Bar within walking distance of the I, house? I think it was like a couple blocks away, but... Right, so if they were... Let's say there was a band playing and they were tuning up. I mean, it doesn't specifically say, again, what time. Yeah. Right? 
And from the days when I used to be able to stay up beyond 10 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> I do distinctly recall that I would go see live bands and, you know, they would start at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at yeah. night. So I'm sure noise ordinance have changed over the years. Um, but again, in the middle of the night is also subjective, I suppose. Right. Anyway, so that's that. So, yeah, apparently there was also a book that was written called The Amityville Horror Conspiracy. It was written by Stephen and Roxanne Kaplan, and they were one of the people to characterize the haunting as a hoax. Interesting. Lorraine Warren actually told a reporter for the Express Times newspaper that the Amityville Horror was not a hoax, and she maintained that position till the day she died. So, all of that happened in 1976. In 1977, the book The Amityville Horror was written by Jay Anson. 1979, the movie comes out. According to Benjamin Radford, and um, I'll apologize, I don't know what relation he has. I did just find this on this particular part on Wikipedia. (laughs) Not the most reliable source. (laughs) Sorry. Um, But apparently the story was refuted by eyewitnesses, investigations, and forensic evidence. And then also in 1979, lawyer William Weber, who was apparently the attorney for Ronald DeFeo Jr., it's kind of interesting. Um, I'd be interested to know how he got involved. Yeah. In this part. Right. He stated that he, Jay Anson, and the occupants, quote unquote, invented the horror story, quote unquote, over many bottles of wine. Hmm. So one of the other things that we, I know you've heard is that supposedly no one can stay in the house because it's so horribly haunted and all these people just move in and then move out. Mm-hmm. In the course of... What year are we in? (laughs) 2021. Since 1987, so 34 years. Right. The house has been sold only four times. That's really not a lot. No. And nobody who's lived there has said anything has happened. I wouldn't necessarily say anything either if something did. Because there are enough people driving by that house. They would not need any more attention. Even if they were experiencing, experiencing something... They'd probably keep their mouth shut. I mean, I can't... I, I don't want to think that um, uh, the Warrens were ever in on any sort of hoax or anything like that. Because there are people that I... You know, in the paranormal field that I do have respect for. Yeah. It's rough to hear things. Yeah. About people that you respected and, you know, you kind of held them to a higher standard, right? Yeah. But there's just... There's a part of me that is glad I watched that video, and then there's a part of me that kind of isn't, just because I had my doubts already, Mm -hmm. and I feel like some of their attitude actually cast more doubt Mm. for me, and and just the timeline, even. The way it all happened, Marvin Scott, the, the Channel 5 news anchor, like, why was that your connection? Yeah, that is strange. You know, and and to be fair... It's not to say that people can't make money off of the things that they do, right? So look at all the TV shows based on the paranormal and all those people have made money. I think what gets me about this in particular is they seem to be called to all these horrifying cases where awful things happened and then they're making money off of someone else's heartache and and hardship, Yeah, which is kind of what bothers me. But you know what? I mean, who knows? Maybe it's just that everybody else who bought the house was like completely close-minded to this stuff or just wrote everything off as bumps in the night kind of thing or maybe maybe it was just something that 
maybe it was haunted for a short amount of time. Maybe it was just energy that was trapped and fresh because it was something traumatic that had just happened. Their belongings were still in the home. You know, it happened quite quickly and violently. And who knows what that does to energy. And maybe it did create something or manifest something or maybe energy needed to escape or dissipate. Maybe it did cause something and maybe... After all that happened, maybe it, it, it did just settle. And Who I think, knows? you know, I kind of think that I wouldn't be surprised if they did, the Lutzes specifically, did experience something. Mm-hmm. I think that once the media got involved, yeah, it probably escalated. And I'm right? sure they psyched themselves out too. Oh, I'm sure. Like... The odors, I can almost understand, right? We can explain them. Mm-hmm. But like, okay, I can understand where that thought process might come from, right? But I have a hard time with like the cloven hooves in the snow and <laughs> the red eyes. Yeah. You know, that's where you kind of lose me. Yeah. Just, and, and there's a whole bunch of other myths that I found. Actually, I think you found that website. Thank you, Heather. Um, <laughs> what about they, how they said they had the priest there and then yeah. the priest they reached out to said um, the only thing that the interaction he ever had was a phone call. Right. And as a matter of fact, so it was interesting in the video, the myth was that the Catholic Church was hiding something about the house. So like they knew that it was demonic or whatever and they would just refuse to talk about it. And Ed actually kind of made a reference to that. You know, he, he said that the priest was there and had all this happen to him. And yet the church said nothing about it. Like yeah. what's going on with that? I think that may have been almost his exact words. So apparently the assistant to the Vicar General of the Rockville Diocese on May 15, 2002, sent author Rick Asuna a letter stating their position. In short, the letter stated the diocese maintains the Amityville horror is a false report. So that's their official position. Huh. Whether or not that's true. Yeah. It, you know, maybe they are. That's what they're stating. And that was what was listed as fact. So, you know, who are we to whatever. Um, then, of course, there's all the, the claims about Native Americans. It was a burial ground. It was a sanitarium where residents were left outside to die. They weren't fed. And again, right, so that came up in the video with Ed and Lorraine Warren, where he makes the comments about the boathouse, right? So, I don't know. I I start to wonder if some of these claims came from them. Right. You know, I I didn't catch when that video was made. They didn't, I don't think they said it actually in the video. It was clearly quite a while ago. So I don't know if those claims came out or the the myths surrounding the house came after that video. Mm Mm-hmm. And they just circulated like everything does. There is actually statements from Long Island tribes debunking that myth about it being a burial ground and all that jazz. Then there was the conversation about a witch named John Ketchum escaped from Salem, Massachusetts during the witch trials and built his house on or near the famous Amityville house. And he was continuing his devil worship. (laughs) That wasn't true. Although... A citizen from Salem did move to Long Island. He moved to Huntington, which, if you don't know, is about 10 miles from Amityville. Like, it's almost due north. 
Yeah. And then, of course, there was more general cemetery rumors that it was the house was built on an ancient cemetery and it was either abandoned or cursed. That was debunked by the Amityville Historical Society. The owners, this is a myth, the owners of the original house at 112 Ocean Avenue had to move their house down the street because they were plagued with supernatural problems. But as I mentioned earlier, that was not the case. They moved it because they needed a bigger one. Yeah. Um, So that was a temporary house for them. Again, the Red Room was the gateway to hell. Did that come from Ed Warren making the suggestion that these dark arts tools... uh, It just sounded too much like Harry Potter, didn't it? (laughs) Dark arts. (laughs) He was the original. Then, supposedly, they said they couldn't film the movie in the house because... The crew was too scared. And no, they, that did, they didn't true. get permission, right? Right. The town wasn't going to let that happen. They're, they're not crazy. Then, so Kathy Lutz claimed to have had, or at least the myth is, that she claimed to have had three dreams, and this was in the movie, um, and the dreams were about Louise DeFeo. So one was Kathy wakes up screaming because she saw that Mrs. DeFeo died by a gunshot wound to the head. She was shot in the head, Kathy screamed in the film. In a second dream, in Anson's novel, Mrs. DeFeo was, her body was being removed from the plot at St. Charles Cemetery in Farmingdale and re-entombed in Brooklyn, which is not true. Um, And in the last dream, this is where it gets really weird. Supposedly, this was a dream about Mrs. DeFeo making love to the painter of the DeFeo portraits. Like, where did that one come from? (laughs) Really, lady, come on. So as we know, obviously, the whole thing about um, Mrs. DeFeo being shot in the head was clearly not true because she was shot in the upper body. And as I mentioned, the body was not moved from one cemetery to another. They clearly wanted, the the remaining family wanted to keep Mrs. DeFeo with her children. So they wouldn't have moved her body. Um, And then there are some other ones, like the 250-pound front door of the house was inexplicably torn off its hinges... When in fact it was actually a screen door. And that comes off with a breeze in Long Island. Yeah. With all the wind. I'm surprised I haven't lost a few. (laughs) Like entirely. So, and this is something I can't quite figure out. So in the interview, Ed is making a comment about the fact that there was one of the, the claims about the cloven hooves, right? And that there was a light snowfall. And that's how they were able to see the hoof marks. People are saying that the reason it's a hoax is because there was no snow in the forecast for that day. Right? So Ed says, he makes a joke about meteorologists never being wrong. And then in my research, I found that in March 1979, Anson addressed the inconsistencies in the book by saying, yeah, this is the key part. I know the psychical research people say I have made mistakes. They say that on such and such a day, when I said it rained, it didn't rain. So what? I'm a perfectly normal human being, and sometimes I make mistakes. So I'm sitting there, and I'm going, he's saying the psychical research people. So is he referring to Ed and Lorraine Warren? But they're saying the same thing he's saying. I'm very confused. Yeah. um, Things don't just... There are too many things that don't quite line up. I mean, I know that can happen, because it's such a... A, a huge piece of history at this point. Yeah. And it's been remade and 
discussed so many different times that it's not entirely surprising that things would kind of get weird and be out of sync, I guess. I don't know. So based off of your findings and, I mean, what you know about the case, do you think that it's haunted? So that's tough, right? There's that part of me that wants to say yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I want it to be. Yeah. Because it would be kind of disappointing if it wasn't. And I can't entirely believe that something isn't going on. Because it was such a traumatic event. Right. Now, if you believe in cleansings and that those things work, then maybe every owner since then has done one and all's good. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, like, if people aren't open to it, maybe that's why. I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know for sure. You know, I think that there's some certainly healthy skepticism about the claims that were made. Because I just think some of them are just too over the top. Oh, totally. Absolutely. I mean, in our investigations, we've absolutely never gotten anything on video. Right. We've done a lot of investigations. Yeah. Audio is a whole other thing. Here's what I don't get. If they recorded this, if they went there... With this camera crew or whatever. Where's that video? Like, I mean, I didn't specifically search for that video. Yeah. I probably should have. But I feel like that would have been, like, one of the first search results. Right. I would love to see if that exists somewhere. Well, and it's funny, too, because I did look up, like, I searched Ed and Lorraine Warren Amityville House. And I specifically clicked on videos. And they were all, like, there was one from CNN. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, there was clearly the one I watched. So, so most of them were press. Right. That's interesting. I didn't find anything. Or it was people that had talked about Ed and Lorraine Warren doing the investigation. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see anything that was like original footage. Right. How is that not out there then? Like, how is that not one of the top search results? I just, I don't know. What do you think? What, is it haunted? Yeah. I mean, I feel like there might be some energy imprint because of the trauma. I, I don't think anything they said that happened happened there. No. Like I said, I, I think mean, they may have freaked themselves out. <laughs> I think so. You know, you're sleeping in their, their bed. Like, I don't, I don't get that. Oh, no. I think the whole thing is just kind of weird that they moved in. Did they really have plans on staying? You know, they took their furniture. 28 days later, they're out. Oh, well, that's another thing, right? Yeah. So, in the video, they showed a picture. And remind me to tell you another funny thing. So, they show a picture of George and Kathy Lutz. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how she sold her house, I guess, from her previous marriage. And they used that money, and I guess some money that... Uh, George had saved to buy this home. Okay. So I would imagine if she had a house already, she had furniture. Yeah. Why? You're right. Why wouldn't you take that? Like, why would you keep furniture? I understand that that house is large. Yeah. And would be so that difficult it's extra and furniture. Yeah. To furnish. But personally, I would have built furniture before I would have kept theirs. Completely. Just you know, especially the bed. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. Because here's the thing: besides the paranormal and us kind of having that experience, yeah. even if you don't believe in any of that, 
it's just weird. It is weird. And it's like, and I think we talked about this before, like, I'd be sitting there, first of all, I'd have to bleach everything. Mm-hmm. And like, toothbrush, Q-tips, getting in there. Yeah. Like, crumbs in in, in, the, in the, the gasket of my refrigerator, like in the freezer. Yeah. Freak me out. Yeah, no. Right? I'm cleaning that out. If I think that there might be bodily tissue. Yep. On something in my bedroom. Yep. That's not happening. No. And, you know, and back in the 70s, you know, wall-to-wall carpeting was a thing. Oh, yeah. Ew. Mm-mm. No. I don't care how well you clean it. Because, look, they go into hotel rooms and they take a black light and everybody's like, yeah, I'm never staying in a hotel yeah, no. again. So, just... Mm. And especially, not to say that it's less horrifying when it's just adults, but kids. Yeah. Young kids. Like, I just don't think I could go to sleep in that house. No. Knowing what happened there. No, I, I couldn't either. And, oh, maybe I could. <laughs> I <laughs> find it interesting. on a permanent basis. Let's put it that yeah, way. Like, I, I think I, I could spend a night, but I think that would be enough. Because I also think that, like you were saying before, the energy. Yeah. I think that would be overwhelming. I de- That's the thing. I feel like I might be able to, like, buy a house like that after maybe a couple families have lived there since. I Certainly could not buy it when it was so fresh. You know. And certainly could not buy it when their furniture is still in there. Nope. There's that would no have been the biggest hell. bonfire in history. And honestly, I feel like I would have just been freaked out knowing the furniture was still in there. Yeah. And so that kind of lends itself yeah. to the idea that this was Almost maybe people pre- that wanted to something. make money off of this. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere that they had some financial issues, right? So what better way to potentially make some money than concocting this story, like the claims were, right, over a couple of bottles of wine, Mm -hmm. and selling it to the media. Right. And then it becomes a book. Maybe you get a house that you can't necessarily afford because you think you're going to make money off of these murders that were famous. Right. And, you know, it it just seems very plausible. And I'd like to know how how long before they moved into that house did they know Jay Anson, the man that wrote the book? Like, right. did they know each other beforehand? Or did that come about after? Like, you know, did he become interested when he saw the, the media attention? And that's the thing. So it, it's strange to me, too, that all of a sudden um, George Lutz didn't want to talk to Ed Warren about it, but... He talked to everybody else, clearly. He talked to everyone else. Who wrote, they wrote a book called The Press. But he was so scared he couldn't talk about it. Well, the book hadn't come out yet. The well, eventually been, he did. Yeah. So, and that's the thing. Like, the, the series of events and the timeline are very interesting. And everything is just very strange. And I hate... I don't want to... Like, I feel bad saying this. But then sometimes I wonder, like... Did the press approach the Lutzes? And then did... This guy, um, Mr. Scott, because that's the only thing I can remember right now. <laughs> Mr. Scott. Mr. Scott. Did he then tell the Lutzes something like, hey, listen, you know, I know some a couple that can help you. Right? Could have. Like maybe the Lutzes had experienced certain things that freaked them out. Not to the level that the claims are and, and the rumors maybe it, Yeah, maybe it snowballed. Right? So, but that's the thing. So maybe he... Maybe George relayed less sensational accounts yeah. to the media. This guy, Mr. Scott, 
says, I know people that can help you. He contacts the Warrens, who a couple of months later go in and do an investigation. Yeah. Start claiming all this crazy stuff and kind of, they, they kind of worked in tandem. Could right? be. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to completely um, discredit the Warrens because clearly they've done far more investigations than I ever have. Yeah. But it's just a, a theory, something to think about. Unfortunately, I don't think it will ever have the answers. No, I don't think Lutzes are dead. The Warrens, you know, they're dead. So we'll never get the answers from them. And I highly doubt that any paranormal group will ever get in that house. No, not unless someone literally buys it that's in a paranormal group. Matter of fact, I mean, that would be kind of (laughs) cool. And the price of the house has actually gone down not all that long ago over the last couple of years. But yeah, so I don't know. I think I had actually read something that one of the families that bought the house had an estate sale. And the number of people, they showed up in the hundreds. I would have went if I would have known about it. Yep. I would have camped out. I wouldn't have bought anything. No. But I definitely would have. Yeah, but they didn't They didn't let anybody obviously go in the basement or yeah. upstairs. But still. Wow. I would have just wanted to go in there and A, just say I did. Because, <laughs> you know. You're finally in there. Exactly. It's like, I've driven past this house every year on Halloween. Because <laughs> that's the thing. So yeah, I-, I would have loved to have gotten in there and just to see if I could feel any energy. And I think some of that is, you know, just knowing the history. Yeah. Some of it is simply your own mind and mm-hmm. the rest of you. Because if you walk into a location and you have no idea it's haunted and you feel something, that's that's kind of, that's more interesting. Yeah. So certainly if anyone out there has any other information that they'd like to share with us or you know even if you have some questions about Amityville we can certainly try and answer it for you I can't (laughs) promise anything yeah like we said we're still learning about this one ourselves which is pretty sad and considering the fact I've lived on Long Island most of my (laughs) life we won't talk about how many years that is exactly (laughs) um but you can certainly email us at at Grave Crimes Podcast at gmail.com. You could follow us on Twitter at Grave Crimes. And we're on Facebook. We're on Facebook. And we're going to have a website up and running very soon. Oh, and we're on Instagram too. Oh, we are on Instagram. What's our Instagram? Grave Crimes. We'll go with that for right now. Listen, <laughs> that, we that, only that'll set be it clarified eventually. <laughs> we set it up last week. And I'm really bad at most of this stuff, just because I'm not a big social media person. Um, so next week, we're going to be talking about um, another local haunting, which yeah. is, and crime, which is the Center Reach High School uh, murder. And we're also going to be getting into a little bit of our background of how we met some of our investigations and some of basics about some hauntings so that way when we talk about things if you're not familiar with the paranormal you are not completely lost yeah so but we just figured we'd jump right in with the good stuff on this episode figured we'd start off with the good one yeah hopefully it was good we hope you enjoyed it and not sorry and we'd love (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry. sorry um we'd love to get feedback so certainly email us or yeah it's a work in progress and just saying you suck is a not constructive feedback so don't do that yes we don't deal with that kindly yeah Um, (laughs) so yeah definitely feedback is is appreciated and follow us 
on those social media um, platforms. Pl- thank, thank you. That's the word. <laughs> yeah, at eleven fifteen at night, it's, I'm lucky I can remember my name. Yes. Have a wonderful evening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed our first episode, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Welcome to Grave Crimes Podcast, you motherfucker. (laughs) 